Accepting what is, is always the path of thriving. And it's the path of reducing these prediction errors and tethering your predictions better to reality. So to be open to the sensation of what is. Now, there's also thalamic gating, and there's a lot of other mechanisms going on. But but this is um, such a kind of primordial way of having an effect, of affecting sensation itself. Hey, this is Sharif here with another episode of The Golden Hour, joined by Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, good to be back here with you. Hey, uh, Sharif. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Anytime. Well, Kevin, I wanted to talk to you today about uh, predictions. Okay, so uh, the way the brain makes predictions, because this has been coming up a lot in the work that I've been doing, talking with people. And uh, so how does that sound as a general topic? I thought you were going to mention it. Yeah, and you predicted it. Uh, so basically, the idea as I understand it, and maybe you can help me get some of the nuances here. I like to use the example of if you're tired in the afternoon. Uh, sometimes people get tired in the afternoon after work in the morning. And I tell people that uh, that when the tiredness in the afternoon is your brain making a prediction that you're going to rest or take a nap or something like that. And it's making that prediction based on past behavior. It's not necessarily your brain observing that you're depleted of energy and therefore you need to restore your energy. So it's not a sign that really you do need to take a nap. It's just your brain kind of predicting that you will take a nap and therefore the tiredness is preparing you to go to sleep. Or I don't know if napping and going to sleep, that's kind of extreme, but to in some way back off of the work or something like that. So does that make sense? As, as a- Yeah, it does. And I think that's a good starting point for talking about it. It fits with what Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a professor here at Northeastern, uh, talks about the feeling of thirst. Okay, so if you're working out or going for a run in the summertime and it's hot out, and then you get back and you're super thirsty, and you then drink some Gatorade or cold water, and you quench your thirst is quenched, right? Well, it takes like 20 minutes from what you ingested to go into your bloodstream and actually affect the salinity of your blood, the osmolality of your blood. So this, this is all predictions you're experiencing. In fact, your brain is projecting into the future the need for water, and that's what thirst is. So, and getting you ready to drink. And then as soon as you drink, it essentially is predicting satiety. And so you end up feeling better, even though nothing in your body has changed except you've put water into your stomach. But it feels like you solve the thirst when you're thirsty and you drink. But it's interesting that, that so this is all the idea that sensation that we have is really the, um, it's the effect of the predictions that we make then being corrected with the reality that we're encountering. So it's not all in our head. There is a mechanism whereby we correct according, our predictions according to reality to get progressively closer and closer and closer to what the reality is. But it's, um, yeah, this is, when, it, when, when people think about how senses work, just most take the most simple sense, okay, um, well, use sight as an example. 
you know, people think that, okay, you, your, your retinas are doing something and then that's, you know, it's getting the light in from outside of your body. And then that's like traveling down your optic nerve, heading towards your occipital cortex, where eventually it gets packaged and put together and you have all these recognizable things that happen. In that model, you would think that most of sensation involves a message going from the eye to the brain, right? That's like the naive view of sensation, you could say. Um, not in, that's just means like that's the, the, or you could say this the older view of, of sensation. What that had a hard time accounting for is the fact that there may be as many as four times as many wires going from the brain to the eye compared to that going from the eye to the brain. So in fact, most of the activity is the brain going to the organ. And only a small part of it is from the organ to the brain. So what that means is that when it comes to vision, in fact, your brain is sending down to your, to your eye a huge amount of information about what it expects to receive. And then you're able to do a much more efficient job then of processing the signal. The processing is actually just error correcting so that you are correcting what is coming in. Like the, essentially, it's like you have a hallucination that is vision, and that hallucination is then corrected to reality. And it can, that, that ends up being an enormously more efficient way of doing it. So you can sometimes think you saw something and then just with a little more attention, you realize you didn't. The, initially it was projected there and then with a little more attention, okay, then, then, then it went away. Wow, that's, that's a fascinating take on. So then I guess kind of a little bit of a practical question on say the, jumping back to the case of sleep is, how do you distinguish between these two? That is your brain making a prediction or it's it's the reality. Um, so I suppose in the case of sight, it's it's hard to kind of distinguish what's the brain producing this sensation versus the eye, although you, you try to pay attention a little bit more closely. And then in the case of feeling tired in the afternoon, surely at some point someone actually is, you know, if they didn't get much sleep the night before, then they're actually are depleted of energy in the afternoon. So how do you know that, okay, I'm depleted and I need to rest versus this is just my brain making an errant prediction? Yeah, there always is going to be both elements. Okay, there's there's something real, but then there can be an amplification of that signal based on the predictions that your brain has. Where this comes in most clearly is in pain. So, by the way, a, a book that talks about all of this is Andy Clark, The Experience Machine. And so a lot of what I'm saying, even the, the, the Lisa um, Barrett Feldman quote about thirst, you know, that uh, um, she talks about that in her book, How Emotions Are Made. But he also talks about that exact example in his book, The Experience Machine. So he's a professor at University of Edinburgh. He's a cognitive neuroscientist or really more of a philosopher, actually, that does neuroscience and writes about neuroscience. But he talks about pain this way that, okay, so there are, traditionally, there were two categories of pain. Either pain comes from tissue damage or pain comes from nerve damage. Okay, so tissue damage being the extreme, but it's like there's something harming a tissue. And so that's what pain is. You know, like if you cut yourself, okay, now you feel the pain of the cut. That's, that's the kind of pain. That's like primary pain. 
But then you could have this other kind of pain, which people have with certain conditions like uh, in diabetes, you can have neuropathic pain. So, which is that there's something wrong in the nerve itself. And that's why you get pain. But then it got to be recognized that there are these syndromes of pain where there's no tissue damage and there's no nerve damage, but there seems to be still this, um, you know, it can be crippling experience of pain. And that is what you could call predicted pain. That it can happen that the prediction of pain is so strong that the natural, the, the, the noise on your neural circuits gets interpreted as signal, as pain signal, and you feel it as pain. So the British Medical Journal had this famous case of a guy who had uh, jumped, a construction worker jumped off a platform right onto a 15 centimeter nail, uh, and it went right through his shoe. And he was in intense pain and was had to be rushed to the hospital. And they gave him uh, fentanyl and other pain meds that had no effect. It was so extreme, the pain. And then when they get him into surgery, they remove the shoe. And in fact, the nail didn't go through his foot at all. It went right between his big toe and the next toe. So it, it didn't pierce skin. But the guy had experienced this intense pain that was so bad that even fentanyl didn't, didn't get, make it better. So the, the visual cue of seeing a nail going through his foot was so strong that the pain was immediate. So that's predicted pain. But I've treated people with predicted pain syndromes. And I've, I've had people that were unable to work because the pain was so intense like standing on their feet was so intense that they couldn't stand anymore and or sitting was so intense or both and they had to keep alternating. Um, interesting to see then that the prediction that you have of the pain that's there uh, is not guaranteed to be a vicious cycle. It doesn't have to be this kind of vicious cycle. The solution, the way out of the vicious cycle is to pay more deliberate attention to the signal itself. Open up your attention as widely as you can to what is right in the in where the signal is coming from. That so attention is essentially a kind of um, adjusting of how strongly you're making a prediction. So it's the adjustment of what's called precision weightings to a certain prediction. The more you pay attention to something, you are like activating the. Um, the opposite pathway. So like the prediction carries the pain seemingly to the part, but attention opens up to carry the signal from the part back to the brain. So you end up doing this kind of prediction error correcting simply by attending. So as you open up then to the chronic pain, whatever it was, that in itself allows the brain to adjust its predictions down, 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 down gradually. So for this kind, this third kind of pain, which technically they call nosoplastic pain, um, but you can call it predicted pain. Uh, so the, uh, the, the treatment for it is mindfulness of the pain. And it can be very powerful and it can work very fast. So we used to think of these kind of pain disorders as being intractable. Now we see them actually as highly treatable. Mm -hmm. So, okay, that's very interesting. So the example of the nail is... Totally fascinating. Uh, so now, 
if you're um so if you're tired in the afternoon i keep coming back to this example uh so then you're saying okay in some way your brain is predicting tiredness and what you want to do is attend to that and and then you'll you'll kind of take in more of the reality of the situation uh, and then you'll be able to better assess am i actually tired or not uh, and so i think one people might one thing people might do is think oh i just have to push through this like i feel tired but i just got to i just got to go and so you're almost saying that that's not a good response because pushing through and just ignoring the sensation you're not really opening up your attention to what is and so you're, you're still working off your brain's prediction and so you're not really getting the real situation is that is that right yeah you- and this this relates i think that's exactly right so i think that would be um so that accepting what is is always the path of thriving and it's the path of reducing these prediction errors and t- tethering your predictions better to reality so to be open to the sensation of what it is. Now, there's also thalamic gating, and there's a lot of other mechanisms going on. But but this is um, such a kind of primordial way of having an effect, of affecting sensation itself. So that's like even below where the thalamus is then operating and determining what goes to your consciousness. And so there's all these fascinating ways they interact. Uh, the uh, The idea that uh, so you're opening up to the sensation of tiredness. As you do that, you'll notice that the sensation, if you try to attend to it more exactly, it gets a little bit squirrely. It's hard to pin down. Where exactly is it? How, 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 like, it's the same with hunger. The more minutely you try to feel your hunger, the more you would like let your mind paint a picture inside that corresponds to the feeling, the fuzzier it gets. It seems so distinct, it seems so real until you try to open up closer to it. And that's because mo- much of what you're experiencing is simply all these same predicted pathways. Perhaps this is why people who are depressed find that they feel energized after mindfulness. It's a very common finding in my practice that when people who are depressed do mindfulness, they feel energized. But I think it's because so much of the tired and heaviness that they were feeling was all predicted tiredness and heaviness and simply attending to their body and doing a body scan as their body actually is corrects that prediction error and allows them to in fact feel the inherent energy that the body in fact does have because when people are depressed their bodies aren't producing fewer joules of energy it's like you know the energy is actually the same <laughs> so they feel that they have no energy but in fact their cells have energy their mitochondria are still working and maybe there's an issue with not as well maybe not working as well but they're still basically working just to say that predictions have such an important role in our experience and mindfulness and attention you know to the sensation itself can bring them back to adjust them to reality mm-hmm. awesome hey kevin uh I wanted to move on to a, a somewhat related topic, but slightly different. But I mean, can we do the sound exercise? Yeah, yeah. I love this example, um, which is, it's called sine wave speech. And it gives a very concrete experience of what it's like to have um, uh, prediction error so that you, you uh 
here, let me, I'll, instead of explaining, I'll just play it. Listen to this. Okay, so you may not have been able to understand that at all. I'll do it one more time. Okay, now listen to the original. The man's painting a sign. Okay, so now you understand that what he's saying is the man is painting a sign. This gives you then a model. Now you have the model, and with that model, your brain can connect more to the original that I, to the one that I played. Let me play it again, see if you can hear it now. Isn't that remarkable? Pretty good. So if you want, if you just look up sine wave speech, um, you can find, uh, that was, I think, through the um, Sussex University. Uh, it's a, so there's um, a website that has all of these, that has six different examples of it. And I basically just chose one at random. Uh, but the when you know what to listen for, you can um, you can hear it better. Uh, Andy Clark also gives the example and of if you are listening to music while in the shower. If it's a song you don't know, you won't hear anything. And if it's a song you do know, you'll hear it just fine. So that you like knowing what the thing is allows you then to match it to sensation much better. So this is just an example of how real the experience is of understanding something when the predictions are better matched. So just to say then, like if you have ambiguous sensations coming in, you know, uh, like you don't know exactly how you're feeling, there's a lot, like maybe there's a lot of uncertainty about how you're feeling, it's easy for your brain then to turn to apply predictions that make you really feel then a certain way. And you interpret it as being anxious or being even being mad. But many times these are just predictions the brain has made that's overlaid onto something as a way of making meaning out of it. I see. Interesting. So, okay, can, we've, we've talked a lot about maybe more, well, in, in some cases with senses, these kind of neutral uh, indications that we get or predictions. And then the example of tiredness in work is maybe more negative is kind of how do you overcome this negative prediction, this prediction that you don't want to. So I wonder if we could talk, and we've done episodes on this in the past, but I just like to link it up, is how to harness this power of prediction for good, you might say. Because uh, we've talked about it in the context of dopamine and the dopamine reward system and setting goals that your brain starts making predictions and motivating you to achieve them. Uh, so I wonder if if we could just tie the picture together with with that. How does that relate? Is this is your dopamine system part of this whole thing, or how does it relate? Yeah. So you get dopamine from the resolution of prediction error. Okay. So what that looks like is you to be in the optimal learning environment for any kind of thing. You you have to um, have a certain level of skill matching the challenge such that uh, you, you, it's not like wildly unpredictable, your results. But if you've absolutely mastered something, then it also can't be wildly pre too predictable. Like, so there's this, there's this kind of tension in us between seeking out environments that we've overmastered and that are actually boring now, and then other environments where maybe we have no mastery at all and it's just a little too daunting because we just can't predict what our performance is going to be like. So the healthy approach then is always looking for this middle, middle zone 
where we're out just outside of our comfort zone. So we're just at the point where we can't constantly predict success, but it's not wildly unpredictable either. So, and then to be seeking out, and essentially that's what happens whenever you set a challenge for yourself to do something that you've done before, but to do it in a new and better way. That actually, I think, is the ideal sweet spot for most people of how to find just the right level of predictability and unpredictability. Okay, so that you're not exactly sure you can do it, but then when you actually do it, in this terms, this resolves the prediction error possibility, and you can see, okay, now I did that. So now you have better predictions that you can do that kind of thing, and that actually gives you dopamine. So it's the res resolution of prediction error. So now if you don't, if you just kept then doing the exact same things after that, it would get boring again because it's now become the success is too predictable. So you keep looking for ways to challenge yourself so that you're not totally sure you're going to be able to do it or not. That just means that when you are setting a challenge before some situation, find some meaningful challenge that you're not totally sure you can do that involves a kind of stretch that actually, then as you resolve the prediction error, as you, as you get better at doing it and you get better at approximating kind of the model you have in mind for what flourishing there looks like, then it gets easier and easier and easier to do it. And you can keep on growing that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. The, yeah, that makes sense. And actually, uh, that, that was going to be my last question. Uh, but I do have one more question that came up as a result of this. So we've talked about predictions as they relate to sensations and then also to goals. And then as you were speaking, it reminded me of fixed growth mi mindset, uh, fixed mindset, growth mindset, and labeling yourself. And it occurred to me that, well, when, when you label yourself, your kind of your, your brain is going to start making predictions based on that label. Well, I'm just not good at such and such. So if I do that, I'm going to fail. Uh, so I wonder how thoughts or beliefs about yourself fit into this prediction dynamic. Yeah, I think beliefs about yourself are predictions. So that is going to necessarily limit what you are able to experience. So even if you had a belief, let's say that you just can't handle so-and-so, like there's a person who, well, then you're not going to try new behaviors. You're not going to challenge yourself to deal with this person in some new and better way. Uh, you're not going to find a way for that person to bring out your best and you can't bring out their best. So then actually nothing is changing. And you're not. You, and so in fact, then you turn that prediction into a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what we want to do is to be able to acknowledge the difficulties. That, okay, this is going to be, this is someone who, maybe I normally have, you know, have a harder time dealing with, but then to have a more exploratory, playful approach to it. Like, what could I do differently? You know, like, how could I be better here? So I think it's the, what a growth mindset gives us is a sense that something will get easier with practice. So that we're going to get better and better at predicting and accomplishing success. Some way of flourishing in that, some kind of new, way of acting that is more in accord with our highest ideals. So we always want to be bringing then, you know, our ideals into the actions that we're doing um, so we can stretch ourselves in them. And that always means letting go of um, 
these kind of predictions and self-fulfilling prophecies. We're aware of them. You know, we can we can understand how they operate, but at the same time, then we can get out of the comfort zone. So we can start forming new predictions that are better predictive of actual flourishing. Wonderful, Kevin. Well, I think that's a great note for us to end on here today. All right, Trief. Thanks a lot for your questions. Awesome. Thanks so much. We'll be back next week.